going to be reading from Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. It reads, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more than noble, and those in, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standings as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they there t- they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted themselves as Paul, conducted Paul, brought him as far as Athens after, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And we're going to continue our way through the book of Acts in our series to the ends of the earth. We've been in this series actually for quite some time with some breaks in between for, of course, things like Christmas and then Easter. And we're actually going to be doing a different series over summer uh, in the book of Luke as well. So we want you to be uh, aware of that. And then we'll be coming back into Acts in the fall. But I'm just having a blast as we work our way through the book of Acts and as it kind of makes an impact on my life. And I just find that when you spend time in God's word and when you drink deeply of God's word, that's the way it has the greatest impression or the greatest opportunity of making an impact in your life. And I often think of it as digging a well. You know, when we read God's word deeply, we dig that well in our life so that way we can pull and we can draw from that well. Oftentimes, as Christians, we can be like an inch deep and a mile wide, right? We know kind of those go-to passes of scripture we pull out when it's convenient or the situation calls for it. But when you can dig that well and go deep in God's word and study God's word the way that we get to study God's word here as a church, I just find that to be so beneficial uh, to our walk and to our lives. And so I'm really excited just picking up uh, where we left off last week when we see Paul and Silas fleeing Thessalonica under the cover of the night because of persecution. And that's where we find them, right? They're, they're advancing the gospel in Macedonia. Uh, they started off in Philippi. They made their way to Thessalonica. They planted a church there in Philippi. Obviously, we know they plant a church in Thessalonica because we have First and Second Thessalonians, which is the fruit of Paul's time there in Thessalonica. And so while they're there, of course, they uh, come under fire for their faith. They come under persecution because of what they're teaching and what they believe. And some of the Jews there cause a riot, it actually says in the passage, because they were jealous. They were jealous of Paul and Silas because they're creating a little bit of a stir. They're garnering for themselves a little bit of a crowd and a following. And the Jews there who were in the synagogue became jealous of them and they created a riot because if they disturbed the peace, they could be executed. And that was the goal was to have Paul and Silas executed uh, because they were jealous of them. And so so that that doesn't happen yet, uh, it wasn't yet time for Paul or for Silas 
to be with the Lord because in the fullness of time, God knows exactly what he's doing. They flee under the, per- under the cover of night to escape persecution. And so for, uh, departing from Thessalonica, they end up finding themselves in a place called Berea. And Berea, if you, if you study it, if you look into this passage, you'll find that Berea is off the beaten path. It's kind of in a location that's off the main road, right? It's not close to 33 or 22. It's off the beaten path. It's a little bit inconspicuous. They make their way to Berea to kind of advance the gospel in a place that likely might be easier for them to not be persecuted. But it doesn't take long, does it? Those, the Jews who were in Thessalonica catch wind of, of Paul and Silas going to Berea and they follow them there and they stir up trouble for them there as well. And as we study this passage, we actually begin to see a little bit of a pattern developing for Paul and for his missionary team that I think is helpful for us as we consider and as we move towards being a church that makes disciples who make disciples. They, they begin to develop a little bit of a pattern that we pick up uh, here in this passage that I think we want to pay attention to that pattern. And it creates some expectations for us as to what we should expect when we share the gospel. When we share the gospel with our friends, with our family, in our workplace, in our schools, wherever it is that God has planted us, there are some expectations that you and I should have. And we can learn those expectations as we study Paul and his missionary team as they're planting churches and spreading the gospel and advancing it to the ends of the earth. Because God is continuing to do that today. Do you believe that? That God is still advancing the gospel right up until this very day. I love the book of Acts in chapter 28. It kind of ends with a little bit of like I would call it a dot, dot, dot. Because there's not really an end to the book of Acts, is there? There's Acts chapter 29, and that's who we are today, right? We are continuing to advance the gospel. And so there are some really important things that we learn from Paul and Silas on their second missionary journey that we can pick up on, and I think it will help us as believers uh, gain a little bit more boldness in our attempts at sharing the gospel with those around us. And so before we observe the pattern that we see in these verses, I want to address something that's been on my heart as we've been working our way through the book of Acts week after week. And there's this question that kind of emerged in my heart, and I don't know, maybe it did the same in your heart as well. And so if this resonates with you, I know that it was speaking loudly to me. So maybe this part's just for me, but something tells me there's a sneaking suspicion that I have that this could be a question that you're asking yourselves as well. And for me, the question that has emerged is why must we suffer persecution? Why do we have to be persecuted? Why does it seem like there is so much suffering associated with being a Christian? Does anybody else wonder that sometimes? I mean, I don't, I, I don't know about you. I, I feel uncomfortable whenever I'm in a message that talks about suffering and persecution. And I start to squirm in my seat just a little bit because I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be persecuted I don't know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I should get up here and be more inspirational in that and say, yeah, bring it on, right? But whenever I read scripture, 
I get a little bit intimidated or a little bit scared when I hear Paul say things like, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You know, if you flip back in your Bibles, just to chapter 10 of Acts, you'll see that Jesus actually says to Paul, I'm going to show him how much he'll have to suffer for my namesake. And I can't, I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine or wrap my mind around that idea of suffering. And so I've been asking myself this question, why must we suffer persecution? Why must we suffer difficulty and setbacks as we share the gospel? And so I don't know if I have the perfect answer for you this evening, and I would encourage you to maybe talk about this on the car ride on the way home or study it for yourself or whatever it might be. But I have a few helpful tips, I think, that could be helpful for us. I'm going to actually ask, can somebody get me a bottle of water? Would that be okay? Can I get my, I'm struggling, so forgive me. All right. Anyway, thank you. Dan's got it. We got it. Thank you, Jaden. We got it. Awesome. So why must we suffer? And the first thing that I thought of is that we suffer because Christ suffered, right? We suffer because Christ suffered. That's true, right? But then we ask the question, why did Christ suffer? What caused him to suffer? And we read from Scripture, and we learn very quickly that without the shedding of blood, thank you, Erwin, you're the man. I'm struggling up here. Can you tell? Can you forgive me for a second for this? I feel like this has just been how the night's been going. It's okay. We're doing all right. Forgive me. All right, nothing more awkward than being stared at as you drink a bottle of water. (laughs) I got like a lone tear running down my eye right now. Oh, anyway. All right, we're going to pick up. Dan, I'll probably chug that one too, so bring it on up, man. This is going to be a tough one for us to get through. This is great for the the, the recording too. This is going to be wonderful, so that's awesome. All right. So as we ask ourselves this question, why must we suffer, I just begin to reflect a little bit and just think about what's the purpose, what's the reason for our suffering, and I I reflected on Christ, and and, you know, I really think about this question, and it's like, God never asked us to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do for us, right? It's not like God is saying, uh, follow me, you know, like, do what I say, not as I do, No, he went first, right? He set the example for us, and we suffer ultimately because Christ suffered, and which leads us to ask that question, then why did Christ suffer? But we read from the Bible, we learn very early on, we also learn in Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And furthermore, we see in Isaiah 53, 3, that he was despised. And for me, this is what really drove home the purpose as to Christ's suffering. It says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. This is your savior. This is your God, a man of sorrows. Like one from men, uh, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we, we esteemed him not. But here's the reason Christ suffered. He was pierced for our transgressions. We're, we're having communion this evening, Right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds 
we are healed. So we, like Christ, must be willing to crucify our flesh so that we can receive salvation through what Christ accomplished on the cross, right? Christ was crucified on the cross for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And now as we follow Christ, we have to carry and bear our own cross as well, that we would crucify our flesh, right? Just like Christ was crucified for you and I. Furthermore, Jesus told the disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Christ suffered very specifically for us, for our sins. The punishment that we deserve, Christ took upon himself. So when we think about why Christ had to suffer, it was to pay for our sins, for our mistakes, for our faults, for our failures. And as a result, there ought to then be a response on our part to be willing to suffer like Christ suffered for us, learning then how to crucify our flesh for which he was crucified for. And I could go all throughout Scripture and I could list many more passages that would speak to the reason and the purpose for our suffering. But what I find, and this is true not just of you but of myself as well, that the issue for many believers is that we want the assurance of salvation, don't we? But we don't want to crucify our flesh. It's the ultimate, we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? We want salvation, but we want all that this world has to offer, right? We don't want to give up the things that this world has to offer us. We don't want to be discomforted. We want to have our cake and we want to eat it too. So perhaps the better question is what are you willing to suffer for? Because you will suffer. Christ said that, that he who loses his life will find it, but he who gains it will lose it. And so if you're so focused on having the best life, living your best life now, right? If, you, if that's what you desire with your life, fine, have it, go for it. It'll be great, it'll be wonderful, I hope. But after it's all said and done, you'll have lost your life in the end because you'll have chosen this life over the life God promises us in heaven for all eternity. I mean, really, it's the picture of Jacob and Esau, right? Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's what we do when we say yes to sin. We say that I would rather have this meaningless bowl of soup over and above all of the promises of God. Every time we try to act out, every time we act out in whatever sin causes us to be so easily entangled, it's like choosing a bowl of soup over the promises of God for our lives, but that's what we want. Maybe I should say we wanna have our soup and eat it too. Maybe that's a better way for us to say it, right? We want all of the promises of God, but we want all that this world has to offer, and we don't wanna forfeit those things. Pastor Tim said this last week, and as much as I don't want to admit it, it's true. Our rest is not in this life, right? Certainly, certainly, yes, we serve a good God who gives good gifts to his children, 100%. But right now, you and I are operating behind enemy lines. 
The enemy is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who rules in this current age at this level of this earth that we live in, right? We're behind enemy lines. And I think sometimes we just want to like step off and we want to break, but we can't let off the gas pedal. We have to remain vigilant and we have to say yes to Christ and no to sin. We can't have our cake and eat it too. Which brings me to another thought as to why do we suffer? And the reality is, is because God's kingdom is not of this world, right? But it is at odds with the world's way. And it's really incredible. You read this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. And this is what it says. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for, which is your glory. A lot of words Paul says there, but what is he really saying? He was saying that not even the angels in heaven or Satan himself knew what God was doing or knew that the church was a part of his plan. Do you know how wonderful that is? Do you know how incredible? The angels had no clue that God had this incredible plan, not only to send his son to save lost people, but to give them a purpose and to fill them with his spirit so that we could gather together as the body of Christ so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made visible to the world around us. That was God's plan from the very beginning is that he would work in and through his people, the church, to bear witness to his son, Jesus Christ, that the same power that rose Christ from the grave lives in you. You know, I think sometimes we think that, man, if I could just go back and live during the time of Christ, how cool would that be? And that would be amazing. Or if I could go back to the Old Testament and see some of those wonderful displays of God's power from heaven, like when Elijah called down fire to consume the altar of Baal, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? But I'm telling you, we have something that they longed for. We have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And we have the word of God as our guide. That's incredible. And the enemy never saw that coming. And so when we live out the kingdom of God in this world, it's like two worlds collide. And so of course we're going to suffer when the way in which we live as believers comes into conflict with the way in which the enemy is leading and guiding and steering our culture and our world that we're living in. Of course we're going to experience difficulty when our world collides with the world around us. The church was always God's plan. From the beginning of time, God had this idea in mind of what you and I are doing here in this moment. And it's really remarkable. And I think, if I'm honest with you, we take it for granted, don't we? We go through a pandemic and it's so much easier to watch church online than it is to actually step foot in the church. But what's happening here? blows the minds of the angels in heaven who are looking down in this moment thinking, I can't believe that God would use those people to bring about his purposes on this earth. Can you believe that God would do that through you? That he chose you? It's, it's, really, it's really an incredible thing. 
So lastly, as we think about this idea of suffering, it's also important to keep in mind that our suffering is purposeful. Everything that we go through is useful to God. Our suffering is not just for suffering's sake. It is suffering for Christ. And we can't confuse the difficulty that we experience with this life, which is common to the human experience, with specifically choosing to suffer for Christ. By suffering for Christ, our flesh is crucified. God's kingdom emerges in a dark world, and our faith is strengthened. All of our suffering is made useful by God to accomplish the intended pur- His intended purpose in the life of a believer. Do you believe that? So, you know, I, I, might, not, I might not have the perfect answer for you, or I might not have, you know, one that quite suffices the question that you're answering as to why am I going through the suffering that I'm going through, but I can promise you that all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. That's a promise in God's word. So now that we've discovered why we suffer or what causes us to suffer, I want to begin by looking at some of the low-hanging fruit from this passage before we get into what I think is the deeper meaning where we can glean some helpful insight into what we should expect as we choose to live on mission for the glory of God. So we read in this passage that the Bereans were people who examined the scriptures. And frequently, when we read this passage, this is what our eyes and our attention is immediately drawn to. Am I right? We've heard about the Bereans before. How many of you have heard about the Bereans in scripture? Yeah, many of us have heard about the Bereans, and rightfully so, because we can learn a lot from the Bereans about how we should respond to biblical teaching. And if I might be so bold as to say that there's a, a pretty good reason that why you attend Cornerstone, I know that's what brought me here, is because the centrality of the teaching of God's Word. And I'm not saying that because I'm up here. I'm saying it because I get to sit underneath of Pastor Tim's teaching week after week just like you have, and I get so blessed whenever I hear how how deep God's word is and how far-reaching God's word goes. And so my guess is that you're here because you love God's word and you want to hear the word of God preached, not just hear what your tickling ears want to hear. Is that fair? So we learn from the Bereans about how we should also be people who examine God's word. They listened to Paul's teaching, they examined the scripture, and they allowed their beliefs to be transformed to what God's word says, which is the opposite of what we see taking place in our world today, right? We have our own beliefs, we come to God's word, and if God's word doesn't align align itself with what we feel is right, we just don't read that passage again. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to Christians who have said that they don't read God's word, they just do what feels right to them. That is a recipe for disaster. I can't tell you how many times we, we have a feeling or a thought, and instead of allowing God's word to speak to it, we go to God's word looking for some way to justify why we think or feel what we feel. But instead, we need to be like the Bereans who were living one way, heard the teaching of Paul, and realized, wait a minute, 
I'm going to read God's word, examine the scriptures, and allow what I believe to be transformed and in alignment with what God's word says. We, like the Bereans, need to eagerly receive God's word and then investigate it for ourselves. How can we be expected to carry out the mission of God by taking the gospel to the ends of the earth if we don't even read the word of God? The Bereans have become a model for all of those who desire to grow in their faith. And so oftentimes when we read this passage, we think about the Bereans and we think about how they examined God's word. And so this is one of those obvious things that stick out to us. But another detail that I don't know if you picked this up from last week, but it said the same thing about the Jews in Thessalonica. It says in verse 12, not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men believed. And so what do we learn from this little detail that Luke decides to include in this account? We learn that all people can be saved. All people from every background, from every place in life. I mean, when you go back to the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, you have, you run the gamut of people who receive salvation. You have Lydia. Remember Lydia? She's a leading woman, a businesswoman. She's wealthy. She's got resources, she's got means, she receives the gospel. In contrast, you have that compared to a demon-possessed slave girl who she receives the gospel when God or Paul, God working through Paul, frees her and the church there is planted. So not only do you have now a leading woman, you have a demon-possessed slave girl, and then you see the Roman jailer who had nothing, no desire in and of himself to to follow, follow God. And then in a miraculous moment, God says, he is mine, and he saves his soul. And so we see that same pattern continue throughout Thessalonica, and now we see it here as we look at Berea as well. Not a few leading women and men receive the gospel. The people that you think are furthest from the Lord, God can save them. God saved you after all, didn't he? What's so special about you that God said, that one, they're mine. If God saved you, he can save anyone he likes to save because that's who God is. He is willing that none should perish. And so we have to keep that in mind that as we share the gospel with our family, with our coworkers, with our friends, that anyone can be saved. And so now that we've discussed those obvious details of this passage that jump out to us immediately, I want to take some time to look more closely at this passage to discuss our expectations as you and I live on mission. You know, Pastor Tim has been preaching this vision week after week, and he's been incorporating it into the messages, talking about how we are going to be a church that makes disciples. And by God's grace, we will be that church, amen? But it's gonna involve you being discipled and then making disciples yourselves. We are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You have a call of God on your life to preach the gospel. Do you know that? That you are called to preach the gospel everywhere you go. When you step into your workplace, 
when you go home and you put up with your neighbors or your family, your unbelieving family, when you go to school, wherever you go, you are called by God to preach the gospel in that place. I don't know who you know. Pastor Tim and the elders do not know who you know. What do you think the chances are that God, as he scatters the seed, has placed you right where he has placed you so that you could be used by God to reach people who don't know him? God has placed you where he has placed you to be the one he wants to use to bring the gospel to the ends of the world in your workplace. That is your responsibility, and that is my responsibility. It's hugely important that we grasp that, and we're not just participants who attend a weekend service, but we are the church, and that as we go, we preach the gospel to anyone who will listen. But what should our expectations be? What should we expect as we share the gospel. Well, as we read this passage, we gain some um, expectations. And whenever we share the gospel, we should first and always expect that there will be those who receive the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you expect that when you open your mouth to share your testimony with a coworker, that there is the possibility that they could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Or do you think that God could never use me. Surely God would never use my words to lead somebody else to Christ. You should begin every conversation with the expectation of saying, I don't know if God wants to open the heart of this individual. It's just my job to plant the seed, right? One plants, one waters, but God brings the increase is what we're told. But who knows if God doesn't intend to save your neighbor? or to save that person at school, or to save your spouse, or to save a family, who, who knows? But you should have the hopeful expectation that every time you share the gospel, that person, just like you, could receive salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God could use you to lead others to Christ? Because that is our expectation. Because that's what we see here with Paul. That as he goes to every town, he preaches the gospel, and not a few of them are saved. Many of them come to know Jesus Christ. How incredible would it be if you got to heaven and you knew, bear with me, that there were people who were there and you were responsible for them being there. Of course it's God, but God used you to lead them to Christ Every time you preach the gospel, you should have the hopeful expectation that there will be those who receive the gospel. So our first expectation is the confidence hope, confident hope that some will receive it. And then secondly, we should also expect that others will reject the gospel. We should expect that there will be those who turn against us. Not only will they reject it, but there is the possibility where they could adamantly oppose it. We read in verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there to agitating and stirring up the crowds. It is important that you have the expectation that while sharing the gospel, People could reject what you have to say. 
But we must not become disillusioned by it. Paul doesn't take this as a setback or as a failure. Paul doesn't think, well, maybe I should change my approach so that way I can meet them more where they are, so maybe it sounds more accepting or more tolerant or more, you know, maybe I should change the gospel just a little bit until I get a foot in the door. No, Paul doesn't take people rejecting the gospel as a setback or as a failure. Paul pivots and uses that as the leading of the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel in a new area. So every time you share the gospel, there should be those who respond and receive the gospel. And whenever you encounter somebody who rejects the gospel, you don't stop sharing the gospel. You move on to the next conversation. You move on to the neighbor on the other side of your house. You move on to the next coworker, the next friend. You don't stop sharing the gospel. You keep sharing the gospel. When people reject it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ right? So don't take it personally or as a setback or as a failure. Don't stop. We need to do what Paul did, and we need to remain resilient. It's here that we learn from Paul the importance of resiliency. Whenever Paul encountered rejection, he advanced it in a new area. We read in Acts 9.16 that Paul knew what he was signing up for, He was expecting to suffer rejection and persecution because he knew and he could anticipate what was ahead of him. Still, though, he ultimately had the hope of knowing that many would come to know Christ at his expense, but the reward would be worth it because there would be those who would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We could easily miss, though, in this passage, the importance that when we experience that rejection, we need to lean on the body of Christ and those around us. You know, I think it's incredible as I read this passage that Paul preaches the gospel in Berea, and then what do the Bereans do? They stick their neck out there for him. These people were perfect strangers. And instead of turning him over, they help sneak him out again in the cover of night, risking their own lives. Would we do that for one another as the church today? Or would we give them their address? You know what I mean? Like, do we do that for one another as the body of Christ? Do we come alongside of each other and encourage one another and admonish one another and spur one another on towards good works and tell each other to get back out there and to share the gospel again, even though you might have fallen down, get back up, right? That sort of thing. We need to be there for one another to lift each other up in those moments where we've experienced rejection. So what does this all look like played out in our lives then? How do I share the gospel and what should I expect? You know, part of sharing involves having a strategy and Pastor Tim talked about that last week and and I wish I could get up here and I could tell you how to share the gospel in three ways that will guarantee you a 50% chance of leading somebody to Jesus Christ. But I guess my question to you and myself How did you learn how to do anything that you do? You studied it, and you researched it, and you became an expert matter in whatever you do for your career, right? So that's why we need to be like the Bereans. 
We need to actually study the word of God for ourselves so that in season and out of season, we can be prepared to share the gospel and to give a reason as to why we believe what we believe. I could probably tell you different strategies from the Romans road or whatever it might be and sure, use those things. But my encouragement to you is study God's word for yourself and know why you believe what you believe so that when questioned, you can give an answer for the hope that you have. That's what scripture teaches us, that we would be prepared. And so how do we share the gospel? I don't know your neighbor. I don't know your family member. I don't know your friends. You know them. Study God's word. And when the Holy Spirit prompts you to share what he's been teaching you, speak up. Have the courage. Be bold. And expect that there will be those who receive it. There will be those who reject it. But let's remain resilient so that others can come to know Christ like you and I. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of communion. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. Lord, I pray that as we study Acts, Lord, that we would develop an understanding of how you lead others to your side, Father. I pray that we would learn from Paul and Silas. God, that we would be like the Bereans, that we would examine the scriptures, that we would receive the word with all eagerness, Father. Lord, that we would know in our hearts that there are people in this world right now who you desire to be saved and you're waiting for your church to be obedient to the mission of God, to share the gospel and to make disciples. And Lord, as we receive that mission and as we're obedient to do what your word tells us to do, Father, I pray that we would set our expectations, that we would expect people to come to know you, that we would expect to be rejected just like you were rejected, but Lord, that we would remain resilient so that others might come to know Jesus Christ, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come forward and we're gonna spend some time this evening in the Lord's Supper. We're gonna play some music and as they pass out the elements, I just wanna encourage you to do what scripture tells us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we would search our hearts, that we would examine our hearts, amen? That we would take this time to reflect and maybe just to respond even to the message this evening, to ask ourselves, are we being faithful to the mission of God? So they're gonna go ahead and take these and pass them out. I'm gonna be quiet here for a few moments.
You know, I really did uh, struggle just through this series with that fear of, Lord, I don't want to suffer. But that, I guess that thought, once again, of, God, you're not asking me to do something that you weren't willing to do. God, you went first, right? And he set the example for us. And I really do reflect on that passage from Isaiah 53.3. And I want to read it again before we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper but it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the cup together. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for your son. God, I thank you that our punishment was laid on him. That's a strange thing to thank you for, God because I feel like we're getting away with something. But I thank you for his willingness, God, that it says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. God, I thank you for the plan that you had from the beginning of time to send your son to make a way for us to have a relationship with you. But God, that you didn't just save us. God, you gave us a purpose. God, that we are called to be your church God, to make disciples. And Lord, I pray that as we spend time remembering what Christ has done for us tonight, Lord, that even when we're faced with that question of why must we suffer or why should we expect persecution, that we would remember him, that we would remember your son and what he did for us. God, we ask your blessing on this night. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.